Well, we're looking uh, this morning at Ephesians, our reading from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Um, You may find it helpful, actually. Um, There are Bibles on the end of your pews. You may find it very helpful to turn to them, um, because I am going to be looking in a little bit of detail at the passage, uh, and the page number is 1174. 1174. Uh, It's a complicated passage, and I confess I have really struggled with it. I hope also you were given little notes, uh, uh, sheets, just so you've got an idea of where it is I'm going. But these verses are about the unity that Christian believers have when we are in Christ. And they can be divided up into three sections. Firstly, verses 11 to 12, Paul tells us what we were without Christ. We were not part of the people of God. It's important to hear that. He's speaking to people who were not Jews. 4,000 years ago, God chose the Jewish people to be his people. He said he would be their God and they would be his people. He gave them his law and he said that through his people, all people would be blessed. But as Gentiles, as non-Jews, Paul is saying to his listeners, and I guess this applies to us because most of us, I suspect, are not Jewish by birth. Paul is saying to them, you were not part of the people of God. But not only that, he is also saying to them, you were at war with God. We chose to live without God as rebels against God, enemies of God, choosing to be blind to God, deaf to God, because we wanted to live our own way and do what our own desires led us to do. Yes, we might spend time in meditation and say that it's prayer, or we might turn to God when we're in trouble, but most of the time we're not praying to the real God. We're praying to a make-believe fantasy God. Um, I remember Eric Delve. um, At the time, he was an evangelist. I think he's a vicar, still a vicar now. Um, And he told the story of his conversion. His life was in a mess, He had treated his wife like dirt, and she had had several uh, nervous breakdowns as a result. She was a Christian, went to the local church, and one day the local vicar came round and went straight to Eric and said, Eric, if there is ever a man I know who deserves to go to a Dante-like hell, it is you. And he said how on one occasion when he was walking across Bristol Common, having spent the night with yet another prostitute, feeling absolutely dreadful, he cried out, God, help me. And he said, I heard God speak to me, and God said, no. No, not until you surrender your life to me. We were at war with God. We blinded ourselves to the reality that we owe God everything and have given him nothing and that God owes us nothing but has given us everything, and we've lived for ourselves and not for him. And some of you may still be there, and you need to do something about it pretty quickly, because you are, in the words of verse 12, 
without hope and without God in this world. Secondly, Paul tells us what we are in Jesus Christ, verses 13 to 18. Because of the blood of Christ, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, we have been brought close to God. Verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The language that is used here is the language of the deepest intimacy. It's not just the language of someone who's far off being brought near. Paul says that when we turn to the Lord Jesus, we are not just brought close to Jesus, we are actually brought into Jesus. We we can understand the language of Christ in us. We talk of inviting Jesus Christ into our lives of his spirit coming to live in us. If you want a graphic illustration or picture of this, think of communion. In a few moments, we're going to receive the bread and wine, take them deep into us. And by faith, we receive the Lord Jesus into us. But the language of us being in Christ is more difficult If I explain it like this, uh, this is uh, a book. This is a piece of paper. The piece of paper is now in the book. It and the book are totally united. If the book is thrown on the ground and trampled over, the piece of paper is thrown on the ground and trampled. If the book is burnt, the piece of paper is burnt. If the book is honoured, the piece of paper is honoured. As believers, God put us in Christ. And if Jesus, so when Jesus hung on the cross, in Christ we hung with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, in Christ we rose with him. And if Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is so close to the Father, if he's always with his Father God, then if we are in Jesus, we are close to the Father. That's why Paul writes, through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Please, this is really intimate language. We're not talking about being close next to Jesus. We're talking about him being in us and us being in him, absolutely, so that we are part of each other. Secondly, we're part of a new humanity. Verse 15 talks of a new humanity that he creates, in one in place of the two. Again, I, I think of this piece of paper in here. But if I add another piece of paper, then it's not just the one, but the two are put together. They are also now part of each other. And the passage speaks of how Jesus, by his death, has created this new humanity. How? By putting people into Jesus. And so Paul speaks of how Christ has broken down the wall of hostility. 
He's speaking here of the divide between Jews and Gentiles. Jews despised Gentiles. Gentiles ridiculed Jews. Actually, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a physical wall. It was the wall that separated Jew from Gentile. On one side, all people could mix together. On the other side, the holy, special side, only Jews could go. There, there was even a notice. I've actually put it on, on that little sheet of, uh, uh, of A5, um, uh, which stated in Latin and Greek, not that trespassers would be prosecuted, but effectively, trespassers would be lynched. But in Christ, that wall of hostility is broken down. Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus could come together as one. There was something that was someone much bigger who united them. And elsewhere, he speaks of the hostility of conflict between slave and free, barbarian and cultured, male and female. And he says, in Christ, we are made one. In the book Sapiens by um, Harari, it is a brilliantly written version of the history of Homo sapiens, although the health warning is that it is from an overtly atheist Buddhist perspective. But Harari writes this, Evolution has made Homo sapiens, like other social mammals, a xenophobic creature. Sapiens instinctively divide humanity into two parts, us and them. Us is people like you and me, who share our language, religion and customs. We're all responsible for each other, but not responsible for them. We were always distinct from them and owe them nothing. We don't want to see any of them in our territory and we don't care an iota what happens in their territory. They are barely even human. In the language of the Dinka people of the Sudan, Dinka simply means people. People who are not Dinka are not people. The Dinka's bitter enemies are the Nua. What does the word Nua mean in Nua language? It means original people. Thousands of kilometers from the Sudan deserts in the frozen icelands of Alaska and northeastern Siberia live the Yupiks. What does Yupik mean in Yupik language? It means real people. But as people who are in Christ, as homo Christianus, we discover that it's not us and them, that we're not over against others, we're part of them, whoever they are, whatever background or culture they come from. It doesn't matter whether they're African, Asian, American or European. And, and this is really important. We realise that we are not complete until everyone who God has called is in Christ. That should be one of the greatest reasons for reaching out for evangelism and reaching out to others. Because we know that without them, we, the body of Christ, is not complete. Thirdly, we've knelt together at the foot of the cross. Verse 15 tells us, Christ has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances. It, it could be talking about those specific laws that separated Jew and Gentile. You know, laws like about circumcision and food and ritual uncleanness. 
It's interesting how we use laws, whether written or cultural, to keep people who are not like us away from us. There's a story of the South African who tried on three weeks in the days of apartheid to go into a particular church. On each occasion, he was turned away. No blacks allowed. That was the law. In desperation, he prayed, God, I've tried to get into that church on three Sundays and they won't let me. And God replied, I really don't know what you're complaining about. I've tried to get into that church every Sunday for the last 20 years and they won't let me. (coughs) But I think that this is probably talking about the law in a different sense. People see the law and think that if they can keep the law, if they can live good lives, then they would earn enough brownie points to be let into heaven. And that, of course, leads to arrogant pride, which thinks I've done it and looks down on all others who are not as good. We hear it all the time, you know, when we say, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than her. Or it leads, if people are more honest about themselves, to a crushing sense of failure and inadequacy and fear. But by his death, Christ has abolished the external law. You're not going to be put right with God by keeping the law. You can't. All we can do to put our trust in him and in his death on the cross, uh, all that we can do is to do that, put our trust in him. All we can do is to kneel down at the foot of the cross and receive him by faith. And that is an astonishing equaliser. I am not in Christ because I am good or worthy or humble. I am not. I can't look down on you. And you're not in Christ because you are good or worthy or humble. You are not. And you cannot look down on me or on anyone else. You are in Christ. I am in Christ. The believer in Eritrea or Peru or Tehran is in Christ because we are nobodies with nothing who have come to Jesus because we need his mercy, his forgiveness, his new life and his hope. Fourthly, we've been given peace. The word peace is mentioned four times in this passage. Peace with others, we've spoken of that. Peace with God. This is the peace which comes from knowing that the war against God is ended. Hostilities have ceased, not because of us, but because of Jesus. We are right with God because of Jesus. This is the peace that comes from knowing that even though God knows me completely, with all the deepest, darkest rubbish that is there, he still loves me. This is the peace that he pours into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Uh, And then thirdly, and finally, Paul tells us how our unity in Christ is seen in the world, verses 19 to 22. We are, it says here, no longer aliens and strangers, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Uh, That's a whole sermon in itself, probably two sermons. And we're being built in together to become a temple We're not talking about a literal building. I know that we pray prayers and sing hymns that speak of our church buildings as temples. Very conscious that one of the prayers that the choir use speaks of the church building uh, as the temple. 
But actually, our church buildings are only shadows of the real temple. The real temple is not made up of literal bricks or stones, but of people. We're built on Jesus, on his death for us, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, on the teaching of the New Testament. And as people who have been brought close to God, who share in a new humanity, who have knelt down together at the foot of the cross, who've been given the gift of peace, we are being built together. And this temple has a purpose, to be a place of worship, but more than that, to be the place where God is. When Christians live in unity, when we remember who we are in Christ, when we dismantle the walls that are so easily built up, those deadly walls built of the bricks of selfishness, pride, jealousy, unforgiveness, resentment, status or power-seeking, envy and fear, then God is there. There's a story told about the father who brought his little daughter to church uh, on, to visit on several occasions. He used to tell her, this is God's house. On the fifth visit, the little girl turned to her father and asked, Daddy, if this is God's house, why is he never at home? Well, when God's people gather in the name of Jesus when the doors are wide open and the walls come down, then God is at home.